Short version. Alright, a little more than that. Judaizers are what? They're doing what? Alright, so, so I've got Paul. That's significant. We have Judaizers, and they're wanting you to be Jewish. And we said you need to be one. Point being Old Testament laws. An example being circumcision, um, food. Yeah, those are the main two. Maybe table fellowship came up big last week. Oh, the, the, the faith of Jesus? Yes. So Paul was saying, out of all these Old Testament laws, which one saves you? None. Very good. If anybody got that wrong, that would be great. Instead, go the other direction. I guess we're going right here. The other direction would be what? Instead, what saves you? Paul's main point. Alright, I heard the word grace. That is correct. That's not the topic we're talking about today. Faith. And particularly faith in Jesus. So Paul writes the book of Galatians over this problem. He planted this church. He taught this. He leaves while he's going. Now we've kind of walked through the history. This is not just happening in Galatia. This is the debate of the early church. It climaxes in Acts 15. Um, we're probably in Acts chapter 15 verse 1. Um, right before that happens where Galatians is going on. So right before the controversy reaches its head, we're getting the book of Galatians written by the Apostle Paul to a church who received faith in Jesus, but is now transforming into a church based on rules and regulations. Now, what we, in our modern lingo, we wouldn't say Judaizer. What do we call a church that focused on the, the rules and regulations? Legalistic. Right? We'll end up with a problem. We're not going to do it tonight. But if you go from legalism, what tends to be the opposite side of that spectrum? Oh, okay. I heard the big word. Antinomianism, of course, four people know what that word means, so what, what's another way to say that? What'd you say? Freedom? Freedom in what sense? Everything goes. Well, do whatever you want. Well, the right answer is somewhere in the middle. So we're not dealing with the extreme at this moment. We're going to get to that. Right now, we're dealing with, instead of the law, grace. So we've gone through Paul's background, where he got the gospel from, then he made the argument last week, Connecting with the time Peter was in Antioch, you remember this? When Peter was in Antioch, guys from James came, who were these Judaizers, and then Peter quit eating, or in other words, having communion, at the same table with the Gentiles. Why could he have communion at the same table with Gentiles? What qualified you to sit at that table? Salvation. Only. Nothing else. And so when Paul, or Peter rather, says, all right, never mind, we can't sit at the same table. Now he theologically knows, but technically in practice, he just added something to the gospel. What did he add to the gospel? He added the works. Now he knows better. He's acting inappropriately, and that's what Paul calls out. He called him out in his face, I can just imagine the finger pointing, and he says, how can you live like a Jew? I mean, say you live like a Jew, and yesterday you were living like a Gentile. In other words, saying, what had Paul, Peter been doing? What had Peter been doing before James showed up? James, God showed up. He, was, he looked like the sinners. He's maybe even eaten the bacon. I'm not sure, but maybe. Maybe even eaten the bacon. Paul uses that as a big analogy to say that's not how the gospel works. And now, 
He's going to dive in and make the argument a lot more theologically crisp. So last week we kind of hinted at it. We got started. I tried to kind of build it up when we got into the subjective versus the objective tentatives. Anybody just get really excited about that? Go home and be like, that was the coolest grammatical lesson you ever heard. Maybe two of you. Okay. Well, tonight we're going to talk about the difference between metaphysics and ethics. So, so that's going to come in there at one point. And that's who you are. You're like, I don't care. Oh, I hope you know what we're doing. It's going to, it really does matter because it's part of why we have miscommunication sometimes. So let's dive in. So he's going to change his argument, but not his attitude. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. How would you describe this attitude? It's not better. Um, he started out the letter. Instead of his usual, I thank God for you. He's like, I can't believe you. You ever had somebody start the conversation that way? I cannot believe you. It's kind of how a parent starts a conversation with a child sometimes. Or, or our version is, uh, what were you thinking? You know, okay, I've said that a few too many times. Same attitude going on in chapter 3, but even though the attitude's there, he is going to be a little bit more nuanced in how he's going to attack the question. So the big thing he's dealing with is whether or not these laws contribute to you being justified. So before we go further, let's just remind ourselves what justified was. What does it mean to be justified? It's related to things. It's not exactly the same. I'll take made right. Made right's good enough. We can get a lot more nuance than that. But it's God took his people in the Old Testament. He set a group of them aside says, these guys belong to me. They were in right relationship with God. They were justified. It was almost synonymous with sanctified. Sanctified meant set apart. Justified was just a little more particular in how they got set apart. They got set apart by God making them righteous. So that's what we're dealing with. How does one get justified? So verse, verse 1, chapter 3. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Or literally in the Greek, who put a spell on you? This other, you ever heard of the evil eye? This is really what he's referencing in that culture. It's this idea that like, something could bewitch them. Of course, he's using it as a metaphor. He doesn't think that literally happened. But who, who bewitched you? Who put a spell on you? Obviously, because you would need a spell to mess up something so obvious. You'd have to be bewitched. So he's just being derogatory. You follow the lingo. So who put a spell on you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, what do you think that lingo means? He was publicly portrayed as crucified. So it was preached. Yes. Yeah, so Jesus had long been actually crucified. We're not talking about they didn't put on a drama play. They showed the Jesus film. They showed the Passion of the Christ. So that's not what they mean here. In fact, the word there, publicly portrayed, is talking about public speaking. It was said so publicly. Out, out loud in front of everyone. So here's the question. Let, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So we have three things we need to make sure we understand in that passage. One is the Spirit. Now, in how many of your Bibles the Spirit happened? Anybody have a lowercase there? So capital suggests that what is being talked about? Holy Spirit. And it probably is. Unfortunately, in original language, 
Paul doesn't use capital or all case, and we wouldn't know because we don't have Paul's copy. And most of the companies we do have, they're all lowercase anyway, and some of them are all uppercase, so it's hard to tell. But it probably means Holy Spirit, and the reason we would say that is because we think about salvation, especially in the book of Acts. The day of Pentecost, what happened? They received the Holy Spirit. Then the whole big deal when the first Gentiles got saved, how did that manifest to Paul? The coming of the Holy Spirit. And we see this lingo used throughout all of Paul's letter. There's a connection between being saved and receiving the Spirit. So this idea of receiving, except after seeing. All right, so receive Holy Spirit. Here's the question. Did you do that by means of A or by means of B? What's the first one? Did you get that by works of law or by what? Hearing by faith. Now, this is written in such a way that everyone reading the letter knows the answer to the question. What's the answer to the question? B. They got it this way. I mean, just think through the basics of how anyone gets saved ever. What's step one every time? Hearing. Hearing what? So, in some way, the gospel is proclaimed. I guess I'm going to write that whole sentence. So, the gospel is proclaimed. Yeah, I know. You just had to say it. You, know, you had to. Appreciate it. All right, then, and so we're filling in some blanks here. The process of salvation always works this way. Number one, the gospel is proclaimed, presumably to sinners. Then that sinner does what to Christ? Instead of receives, don't we use trusts. Trust is my favorite way of translating the word faith. We could just say faith, Christ. I like the word trust. So the sinner trusts Christ. And then God does what to the sinner? All of those are excellent words. I'm going to go with justifies. That's the word we're concerned about. God justifies the sinner. So where did works of the law happen in that process? Weren't involved at all. Had, had no role to play in that step. Now the reason he's asking this question is because they know this. You didn't have to argue this theologically. They have to prove this from the Old Testament. Why should they know this? This is how they did it. Paul showed up. He preached the gospel. Many of them believed. God justified them. And what happened when they got justified? The Spirit came. And then what do you think Paul, or at least someone with Paul, did to those guys after that? After we got out of the We put them forward, but then they got baptized. Paul kind of just calls these all the same thing. Just one big moment. You got baptized, you see the Spirit, justified. He's going to use that lingo almost synonymously throughout his letter. So here's his point. Well, let's read verse 3 and then we'll we'll say the point. So, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And really, the way it's worded in Greek, you could probably better say, having started by the Spirit, do you finish by the flesh? Now, what do you think his answer is? No, of course not. 
Because the whole point, why did you need to start with the spirit? Because the flesh couldn't. The flesh could not do it. So the flesh is not going to be what takes you from A to Z. You start with faith because faith is what gets you from A to Z. So obviously faith is what's going to get it. So if you if salvation is begun by faith, it will continue by faith. Exactly. Very good. Now we're going to get fun. Let's read verse 4. It says, Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Okay. I want to talk about a dualism here. When I say the word dualism, what does it make you think of? Two. Two. Okay. We have to be careful how we understand dualism. What are the two things you can see in this passage so far? Can you see any dualisms in this passage? Right, so we can definitely do works versus faith. That's one of his dualisms. Yes, that's the other. This comes up broad and fall. We have flesh versus spirit. This is the one I want to talk about first. This one is fundamental and it is regularly misunderstood. Because Paul means one type of dualism and not the other. And we're going to get to use some big words. Let's have fun with our big words. When Paul is using this dualism, so Paul's dualism, that's the first line, his dualism is ethical, not metaphysical. Ethical, not metaphysical. You've probably heard the word ethical before. When I say the word ethical, what do you think about? Morally, Moral and ethics are very related. They, in some cases, they could be synonyms. Right, so here's how we're going to define it. And this is just my definition. It's concerning the moral implications of an action. The way of life. Based on the Greek word, ethos. has to do with the culture, the, the, the mores, the, the taboos, the values of a culture. Um, so when Paul is using this dualism, it's ethical. This is why that's important. So when he says the word flesh... He's meaning things that are sinful, bad, and ungodly. Things that are sinful, bad, and ungodly, as opposed to the spirit being righteous, good, and godly. And it has to do with the actions, the type of action. Now, what about the word metaphysical? Metaphysics. Have you ever used that word before? Maybe a few people. You've heard this before. Any idea what the basic idea behind metaphysics is? Not beyond, behind. In other words, what what makes something physical? What is something? What, what is the something? Like, what makes something be something? That's what metaphysics is just our attempt to answer that question. So in religion and theology, that's us talking about what are things made of. Not from a necessarily a scientific perspective. When I say, what are you made of? The uh, materialist is going to give me a very particular sort of answer and say, well, mostly carbon. Um, <laughs> and what do they do? Yeah, the list of parts. And so, you know, in the first Star Trek movie, the motion picture, the terrible one, um, you know, the, the, the alien is looking for the, the carbon units. Okay, well, yeah. So metaphysically, I'm carbon. 
plus a lot of other stuff. But I am predominantly carbon, which is where our whole idea of fossil fuels come from plants, not really dinosaurs, plants, carbon-based stuff. So that's not what we're asking religiously, though. When I say what's a person made of, what other kinds of answers might I get? Spirit, flesh, mind, and usually when we say heart in this context, we don't mean the thing that's called the blood. Conscience, we have a lot of the, the mind, the psyche, the, the soul is used a lot here. And there is a sort of dualism, biblically, with the idea of a human being. Let me think about it. We would say the natural state of a man is that they're dead. The dead happen. Spiritually. Obviously not physically. So we're, we're kind of functioning dualistically there. There's a, a body and there's a soul. When you die, where's your body go? In the ground. Where's your spirit go? <laughs> Depends, right? That's a good question, though. If you're a believer, where's your spirit go? To be with the Lord. Wherever he's at. I'm going to call that heaven. Uh, but yes. So we, we recognize there's a metaphysical distinction between body and spirit. So concerning the composition of things. So here, in that case, flesh would be what? This part, right? So is flesh good or bad? Depends on which way I mean it, right? If I mean it ethically, how what is flesh? It's bad. That's Paul's go-to word for the bad part of you. It does not necessarily correspond to your literal flesh. That's a metaphysical conversation. And the Bible, unfortunately for us, uses both of these dualisms all over the place, and you have to think through which one you're talking about. Paul here is definitely talking about the ethical one, where the flesh is the bad part of you, and the spirit the good part, because it originates in God. So let's see, what are we feeling? So flesh is the material part of the human, spirit then is the opposite of that. It's the immaterial part of a human. And unfortunately, the reality is more like this. If we overdo the metaphysical distinction, we actually turn into Gnosticism, which is the heresy of the church. You know what Gnosticism is, but in that worldview, body is bad, the ethical and metaphysical are the same. And the part of you that's broken is literally your body. And to be perfect, you need to lose your body and to go to heaven. And then you'll be perfect because you don't have a body anymore. It also sounds an awful lot like the evangelical Christianity and heaven that floats around the Looney Tunes. Right, what happens to Looney Tunes? You die and then you turn into an angel immediately. Yeah, okay, yeah. And you float at that, right? No, that's that's the wrong version. The, the real thing is, you know, what's the difference between body and spirit? In some ways, it's obvious. But what about your mind? Is that physical or is that spiritual? I mean, can we can we physiologically alter the way you think? So is the mind just physical then? Well, we kind of know it's not, right? That's because there's this gray area. We're not just these two parts smashed together. A human being is that one whole thing. And usually the Bible uses the soul to refer to the whole thing. Sometimes only this part. So that word is used in multiple ways. Now the reason I emphasize this here 
It's just so that we don't get confused when Paul's making this dualism between the flesh and the body. The flesh is bad in the ethical distinction. The flesh is not bad of a human being. How will you exist for all of eternity? Body and spirit, both, here on this planet. That's what eternal heaven will be. So I'm just going through all of that just to make sure you don't misread Paul when we're going through this. The image of God is the whole thing. It's just a way of, it's, yeah, the image of God is related to this whole conversation. If we digress into this, we'll lose everything. Let me give you the really short answer is the image of God is the the whole sum total of man is. So our body displays the image of God, our spirit displays the image of God, our soul displays the image of God, our, our interactions with the world display the image of God. It's not a metaphysical part of me. It's a stamp on me. That makes sense. Give me an example of a verse in the New Testament that is the opposite of that's not ethical. That's what flesh is being used in the opposite of the ethical. For most of First Corinthians 15, it's the metaphysical distinction because what he's dealing with in that chapter is resurrection. And so, in that particular case, what he's emphasizing is what happens to the actual body and what happens to the metaphysical soul. Okay, does that make sense? Most of the time, however, when Paul's talking, you just kind of assume he's talking about the ethical distinction, unless the context tells you otherwise. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Yeah. He, he, and sometimes it's frustrating with Paul. You know, there's only 5,000 words in their language. We have like over 150,000 in English, so we get a lot more nuanced in the way we speak, and they weren't, because... <laughs> uh, <laughs> some words. And I wish Paul would use specific words for each one of these different meanings, but he does not. And sometimes it's frustrating. So you just kind of have to look into it. But you follow? Yeah. Alright. So with that in mind, let us continue. Now he's going to use this Abraham, this, this Abraham of example. This example of Abraham. So verse 6 says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what is Abraham an example of? an example of faith. So in other words, he's an example of what happened to him because of faith. Or saved is a good word. The word we're going for in this passage is justified. You see justified in verse 6? It actually is in verse 6. Counted to him as justification. Same word in Greek. Justice and righteousness, justified and made righteous, literally the same in the Greek language. It's only in English that we write this differently. So Abraham was justified by what? By his faith. So let's read the whole paragraph, and then we'll make some essay whole paragraph the first time. So know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of the world be blessed. So then it is those who are of faith, um, sorry, I misread that. So then those who are of faith are blessed. I I have the tape on my Bible. That's are, are blessed. Along with Abraham, the man 
of faith. So how can we say someone got saved at the beginning? They hear the gospel, they trust Christ, God justifies them. How did Abraham get saved? The exact same pattern. It says God presented the gospel to Abraham. What did it say was preached to Abraham in verse 8? Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. How did Abraham get saved? He heard the gospel. He believed it. And then what did God do? Counted it as righteousness. Or in other words, justified it. Exact same pattern. So God presented the gospel to Abraham. Abraham believed the gospel. God counted Abraham righteous or justified. Same word. Either one. See, see the logic there. But technically, we go back and read the story of Abraham. What is it that Abraham is told by God? We've got at least two specific promises that are being mentioned here. So he'd be the father of many nations, but then a subset within that promise that he'd have a son. And at the particular time he's told this, how far along in that process is he? He's old with no heir. Period. How many heirs does he end up with? Two. One is of the flesh, and one is of the spirit. Metaphysical or ethical? Well, that distinction. Isaac is of the flesh. Ishmael is of the flesh. Isaac is of the spirit. That's ethical. Yes. So which, metaphysically, which child is of the flesh? Both. They're literal human beings. They're of the flesh. Not of the spirit, right? But we mean, and actually says that in chapter 4, it's verse uh, 29. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted on him who was born according to the spirit. Ethical distinction. So, Isaac was not born according to the flesh. We, of course, do not mean in any way that he wasn't born physically. Not at all we mean. We just mean that ethical distinction. But Abraham believed God saved the same way we do. So to move forward, we're going to, I think we do it, 15 minutes. We can do this. We're going to talk about the two covenants. you know the name of the two covenants? I mean, if you were just going to take a guess, and if I said in the Bible there's really only two covenants, um, you'd probably jump to old and new. But technically the old and new are both subcategories of only one of them. There are two covenants in the Bible. So here's what I want to give you. There is a covenant of works. Let's think through how this works. Who's the first human being? Adam. His relationship with God is a covenant. All relationships are technically some form of covenant. And he's got some obligations that he must keep in order to maintain that relationship with God. And what is that based on? I mean, the, the big one, like, he's got, he doesn't have ten commandments, technically. He's got he's got one. But there's a lot of inferred commandments. What's the, what's the underlying basic commandment Adam has? Obedience. He is commanded to multiply, but that commandment only makes sense if he's already obligated to obey God in general. Follow what I'm saying? The general 
basic stipulation of the covenant of works is you are obligated to obey God. So wouldn't you have to have faith in God to do that anyways, though? Wouldn't you have to have the faith that he is God to obey that? So technically... No. <laughs> wow, that's a great question. Wouldn't you have to have... Wouldn't, did, did, did Adam have faith in this original scenario? I would say no, not the kind we're talking about. Uh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. I feel like we're going to get really I think, we, I think we could put Adam on an assumption side. Well, like, okay. He already had a relationship, but it wasn't one that. Well, even if the act of eating the apple at that point, you're not believing what God's saying. Right, so we have to be careful. We do not mean by faith that he believed God existed. Because faith has nothing to do with it. It assumes that. That's. Prerequisite to faith. Faith is trusting that God. And so, if all we mean is trust, he did trust God up to the point he ate the fruit. So, if we go with that, then yes, he has a certain kind of faith in that way. But his relationship with God is determined by his obedience to God. Are there consequences if he disobeys? And we know what they were. Well, what did, well, first, what did God say the consequence would be? On the day you eat from the tree, you will die. Um, not exactly happened like that. What happened instead? He was, he was cursed. Metaphysically, he spiritually died. Okay. Yeah. We get really complicated. All right. All right. So this, this one's based on obedience. And the curse was supposed to be death. And then there's just lots of, uh, we put expulsion, separation from God. Man, that feels wrong. But you can work it out. But what literally happened was not exactly what the stipulation said. Because he was supposed to die immediately. But he didn't. Something did. You read Genesis really close? What what were they wearing when they committed the sin? Nothing. Nothing. And then what they do? They cut clothed themselves. But then, on this day where they get cursed for their disobedience, God gives them new clothes. With what? Animal skin. What happened? Sacrifice. Which is not part of that covenant of works. What did... Adam do that got him saved that day? Yeah. <laughs> he didn't. I think we all know where I'm going, right? He didn't. He got saved this day by grace. Not because it did it. So there's some other covenant at play here. And of course, what do you think we're going to call this one? Covenant of grace. So the rest of the Bible is just explaining how God saved through this covenant of grace. Now, the reality is, the New Testament, now we're getting, I don't have time to prove this, I'll just work with you tonight, and we'll prove this more as we go. The New Testament is the covenant of grace. We need New Testament here. How do we say the New Testament? By faith. Christ alone. But we know, we're told by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, every person who's ever been saved 
have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is directly from the apostles' teaching. So, when did Jesus die? Was that back here? Or was that here in the New Covenant? The New Testament. So somehow this New Testament is what saved everyone backwards. So here's how I want you to think about that in lingo. Imagine this is the bright, the sun. And I do mean that in Both. Yeah, we're going ethically and metaphysically. Alright, so the sun shining brightly. Let me just put a cross here. The Old Testament is the shadow of the glory of Christ cast backwards on top. And these covenants that we see in the Old Testament, there's examples, foretellings, foreshadowing of what will come later. Now what are we told by the Apostle Paul that was preached to Abraham way back here? What was preached to him? The gospel. In a very bell form, wasn't all the picture, he didn't have all the details, but he is clearly standing in the shadow of what will become the gospel. And how does he get saved? He's with faith in that. It's no different than us. Just different in time, different in circumstances. But the currency of salvation is the same. It is faith in Christ. And what ultimately we're going to understand that better, that's what Abraham has done. So let's make sure we're filling some blanks here. So the default relationship of man to God is based on obedience. This is the covenant of works. God has always saved sinners, however, by his covenant of grace. And then God's covenant with Abraham was a prophecy of the future covenant of grace. See how that works. He's preaching the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Now, why do you think Paul is making this argument? And so, does Abraham have what he needs to be saved? Historically for Abraham, what does Abraham not have that the Judaizers are saying matters? He wasn't able to law, any part of it that doesn't exist yet. Moses and the ten tablets, that's later, right? And at best, they're still in the shadow. See what I'm saying? This is why Paul's going to make this argument more explicit in the second half of chapter 3. So we'll save that for next week. This is the point, though. And so, the way to get saved is and has always been faith in the gospel. Right, let's keep going. Go to the verse where we have 10. Right, so, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Or it's written. Where does that curse come from then? <laughs> it's the curse of the coming of works. All disobedience is cursed, correct? And then it's even more explicitly stated in Moses' covenants that if you don't obey the law, you are cursed. Cursed is anyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, some people take that to mean that Moses' covenant is a reinstatement of the covenant of works. I don't believe that is the case. I believe there's an attitude you can look at that covenant that turns it into the covenant of works. That's not what it is. God, Moses says, I've set before you today life and death. 
Choose life. There's life in these commandments. And Paul says the law is good in another passage. He does not in any way teach that. It's just a restatement of this covenant of works. In verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. It's obvious that that's not the case, is what Paul said. Here's the clue, though. No point in Old Testament history did obedience to the law save. They were saved by faith. From beginning to end, and Paul further quotes by saying this, for, the end of verse 11, the righteous shall live by faith. He's getting that from the Old Testament. The righteous live by faith. So, in other words, Paul's going to take that to mean the faith is what made them righteous. See what he's saying? That's what he's doing with this command. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So what is that a reference to? Jesus being hanged on a tree. Obviously the crucifixion. So Jesus, here we said, what did he receive? The curse of this covenant. <coughs> Let's just talk about what covenants are for a moment. In a covenant, when you have a group, the covenant is virtually always made by a single individual for the group. So technically, we had a representative, you personally, had a representative presence when this covenant of works was created. Who was that representative? Adam. He made some decisions for you. What particular decision did he make on your behalf? Just okay. Consequently, the entire human race in Adam sinned that day. He's our covenant representative. Not only are we guilty of our own sin, and we are, we're even guilty of the sin of humanity at large in Adam because he is our covenant head. Just like if I quit paying the mortgage on my house, uh, my kids would experience the consequences of that being repossessed by the bank. You follow what I'm saying? Even though it's not them doing it, they're still punished in a very real way because of what I'm doing. It's just covenant, a lot of covenants work this way, especially the biblical covenants. So Adam is our covenant representative back there. Well, who's our covenant representative now? Christ is. The problem is, however, I do have the condemnation of this covenant. So in order for me to be saved in this covenant, I mean, who's not with this covenant? It's God's life. It's part of his character. His justice is the same. It's God's justice that God is satisfied in Christ. He receives all those in his name, anyone in Christ, anyone under his headship. So here's Christ. Anyone in that relationship down can be forgiven. And anyone here <laughs> under Adam is still under the curse. Are you saying that the word started with Adam or started with I've said it's over with Adam. The covenant of works is the default relationship between God and man. He is Lord, God of the universe, he should be obeyed. That's the basic stipulation of the covenant. So it would be whoever was first would have been the first one. That makes sense. It's just the default. Alright, so under the covenant of grace, Jesus became the curse for sinners, representing them in their sin. 
Because what did this curse say would happen? If you eat from the tree, you'll die. Jesus did that for you. So according to gospel, he takes the penalty. Through faith in Jesus, we participate in his new covenant. We are therefore saved by the same covenant as Abraham. Same one. Because Abraham was saved by which covenant? The grace. And to use biblical lingo, we would say by the new covenant. Abraham was saved in the New Testament ethic, which is faith in Christ, the part he knew. Now, where do we leave our reading? Verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So, there's not two different covenants, is what Paul is arguing. You have to have two different covenants for the Judaizers to be correct. You follow what he's saying? The Judaizers are incorrect because what Paul is preaching is the only part that ever saved through any of this anyway. That's how the gospel works. So now the Judaizers have no ground to stand on. Because otherwise, not only Abraham, but Isaac, Jacob, his descendants, all the way, everyone down to Moses, they only had one aspect of the wall. What was that? Well, they had circumcision. They didn't have any of the other laws had come yet. It's not only Abraham, however, <coughs> when did he get circumcision? Afterwards. Not before. So their father of their faith doesn't even meet the Judaizer standards. So clearly, that means they're wrong. So entrance into this covenant is based solely on faith in Christ. Period. Nothing else. Solely on faith. But then we could ask the question, well, why have the law at all? Next week. Okay. Very good. <laughs> That's where we're going. That's what Paul's going to work through for the next like several weeks. We're going to be answering that question. Well, why have these laws? And then I'll say this. Talk about several different angles for, for why the law is there at all. All right, any questions on this particular? No, we're right at the end. Well, just about that. We'll come next week. You don't want to miss next week. <laughs> Jim. I missed the, uh, what's the law or the things that we do that are demand? Oh, I don't think I ever said those. Works of the law are the things that we do that originate in man, and hearing of faith or things of the spirit are the things that originate in God. And that's what Paul means when he uses this ethical distinction between flesh and spirit. Oh, okay, yeah. Mark, any other? <coughs> I won't pray for us. God, we thank you for tonight. May you bless this study. I pray that we prove fruitful in our lives when we think about the, the glorious truth of the gospel. We are saved by nothing other than our faith in Christ because of his work to atone and redeem. And we contribute our work to that. Father, praise your name for the goodness of this gospel. Pray that you would apply it to our lives daily as we humble ourselves in faith and obey you and everything you say for us to do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. When's the final exam? Well, if you don't want a final exam, I'll be happy to